Saturday night. It's actually more than just Easter weekend for us because we have a birthday party tomorrow times two. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. We are, we were busy little bees this morning. And then now I'm sleepy and I want to take a nap again. Um, but we, so we have the twins have a birthday party tomorrow. So we've got Easter service in the morning and then go into an Easter birthday party. And needless to say, mom is a little stressed out. I think she's better now though. I think she's all better. But, but today we're going to continue on with our story of George Armstrong Custer. Remember where we left off, Kim? I do. I do. Um, but why don't you, if you haven't listened to part one, stop this. Um, it, it's fine. We'll be here when you're ready, but go listen to episode one. But if you, if they really like they listen to it, but they don't feel like listening to it again, can you give them a short recap of what we talked okay, about? Already? Well, basically we, we, we covered Custer's history, how he grew up, how he went to West Point, how he was the goat or the lowest person graduating in his class. And then because of the civil war, he, he moved on. He has real pretty hair. He has, he has real pretty hair that he laces with cinnamon, apparently. And uh, he, he moved on. He kind of was a hero during the Civil War. And then after, re, after during Reconstruction, Custer went on and was moved down to Texas. And they weren't really happy with him down there. He was court-martialed a couple times. And where we left off, Custer was uh, court-martialed for leaving his Kansas frontier post while he returned back to Fort Riley to visit his wife, Libby. Mm-hmm. And from there, the last thing we talked about, he was suspended from rank without pay for a year, but Sheridan reinstated him for after 10 months on October 7th, 1868, because he was needed to go lead a campaign against the Cheyenne. And that's where we left off, and that's where we will start this week's episode. All right. And really, when we did this, we had no idea it was going to take Two episodes to do it, but it just kept going on and on and on because he is a really colorful character. Yep. Okay. So last week we started off with a little disclaimer about the wording that we use. We're we're trying to use the wording that is historically accurate to the time and to the period. Correct. We are not trying to be offensive to indigenous peoples at all. Um when we use the terms Indian territory or Indian wars, that's because historically that's what it was called. It's it's it would be like renaming World War Two. Yeah. So we don't mean any disrespect by it or anything like that. That's historically yeah. what it's called. So. Okay. So with that out of the way, Custer then went on to frontier duty scouting in Kansas and Indian territory to October 1869. Under Sheridan's orders, he took part in establishing Camp Supply in Indian Territory in early November 1868 as a supply base for the winter campaign. On November 27, 1868, he led the 7th Cavalry Regiment in an attack on the Cheyenne encampment of uh, Chief Black Kettle, the Battle of Washita River. He reported killing 103 warriors and some women and children. 53 women and children were taken as prisoners during that campaign. Yikes. Estimates by the Cheyenne of their casualties were substantially lower, 11 warriors plus 19 women and children. 
Custer had his men shoot most of the 875 Indian ponies that they had captured. Now, that sounds harsh, but he was on a, and I'm not trying to make excuses, but I don't even say in his defense, but that was to deprive them of being able to attack and retaliate. Yeah, and I kind of wondered about that, too, like why he shot the ponies as opposed to keeping them and you know, well, if you kept putting them in if you kept America it, ranks, if you kept them, you had to feed them. I guess that's true. So the Battle of Washita River was regarded as the first substantial U.S. victory in the Southern Plains War, and it helped force a large portion of the Southern Cheyenne onto a U.S. assigned reservation. In 1873, he was sent to the Dakota Territory to protect a railroad survey party against the Lakota. On August 4, 1873, near the Tongue River, the 7th Cavalry Regiment clashed for the first time with the Lakota. One man was killed on each side. In 1874, Custer led an expedition into the Black Hills and announced the discovery of gold on French Creek near present-day Custer, South Dakota. Which nothing, nothing like gold to is, bring out the best. Yeah, Custer, South Dakota is a pretty... Uh, neat little town we we were there i believe that's where we saw like literally downtown main street there's just like deer walking across the middle of the road in the middle of downtown it's very it's very odd yeah and there's custer state park yeah it's exactly what you would picture like an old west town looking like if you go into a saloon there's sawdust on the floor yeah it's it's very accurate realistic anyway Custer's announcement triggered the Black Hills Gold Rush. And also, the thing about Black Hills Gold is, I don't know if it occurs naturally. It's not, you're shaking your head at me. Okay. So, but Black Hills Gold now, if you look at, um, it's like pink. It's a lot of times you'll see, um, it's like pink and green and like rose colored gold is what, you know, it's kind of known for. It's really pretty. Anyway, uh, among the towns that immediately sprung up was Deadwood, South Dakota, which I'm sure everybody's probably heard of before. It's notorious for its lawlessness. Boot Hill Cemetery. In 1875, the Grant administration attempted to buy the Black Hills region from the Sioux. When the Sioux refused to sell, they were ordered to report to reservations by the end of January 1876. Midwinter conditions made it impossible for them to comply. The administration labeled them hostiles and tasked the army with bringing them in. (sighs) Custer was to command an expedition planned for the spring, part of a three-pronged campaign. While Custer's expedition marched west from Fort Abraham Lincoln near present-day Mandan, North Dakota, troops under Colonel John Gibbon were to march east from Fort Ellis near present-day Bozeman, Montana, while a force under General George Crook was to march north from Fort Fetterman, near present-day Douglas, Wyoming. Custer's 7th Cavalry was originally scheduled to leave Fort Abraham Lincoln on April 6, 1876, but on March 15th, he was summoned to Washington to testify at a congressional hearing. Representative Heister Clymer's committee was investing alleged corruption involving our old buddy, Secretary of War, William W. Belknap, who had resigned March 2nd. And if you want to listen to the William Belknap story, it's episode 80 of An Hour of Your Life. It's a really good story. It's a good one. Um, Not that we did it that great, but it's a really good story. It's a really interesting story. Um, Anyway, the committee was also investigating President Grant's brother Orville and some traitors who were granted monopolies at Frontier Army Posts. 
It was alleged that Belknap had been selling these lucrative trading post positions where soldiers were required to make their purchases. And again, there's a whole lot more detail. um, In episode 80. In episode 80. Custer himself had experienced firsthand the high prices being charged at Fort Lincoln. But he was worried that he might miss the coming campaign, so he didn't want to go to Washington. He asked to answer questions in writing, but Clymer insisted. Recognizing that his testimony would be explosive, Custer tried to follow a moderate and prudent course, avoiding prominence. Despite that, he provided a quantity of unsubstantiated accusations against Belknap. His testimony... I was framed. (laughs) Yeah. His testimony, given on March 29th and April 4th, was a sensation, being loudly praised by the Democratic press and sharply criticized by Republicans. Custer wrote articles published anonymously in the New York Herald that exposed Trader Post kickback rings and implied that Belknap was behind them. During his testimony, Custer attacked President Grant's brother Orville on unproven grounds of extorting money in exchange for exerting undue influence. And after Custer testified, Belknap was impeached? Question mark? And the case was sent to the Senate for trial. Oh, no, that's right. Okay. Um, yeah, he was impeached. And then it was sent to the and then Senate it was for sent, trial. It, and then more stuff happened. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers about that story, but there is a surprise ending to that Belknap story. It's one one for the, like, actually one for the history books, even though I had never heard of the Belknap case ever in school. And it was one of those that if it had been presented... Kind of like the way that we presented it, not that we're great or anything, but, you know, as like a normal person just talking to me, it would have stuck out. I would have remembered it. So, But that's what we like to do on an hour of your life. We like to try to dig up some stories that you may never have heard before. Yeah. And actually, so the story behind the the Belknap thing, um, what what got me slash us interested in it was during one of Trump's impeachment trials, somebody said something on like they were testifying and they said something about Belknap and I had never heard of him before. And so I just jumped on Google and I said, who's this Belknap guy? He, he did what? Who? What? Lo and and behold, (laughs) it turned into episode 80. There we go. So, so anyway, Custer asked the impeachment managers to release him from further testimony with the help of requests from a superior Brigadier General Alfred Terry, commander of the department of Dakota. And he was excused. However, President Grant intervened, ordering that another officer fulfill Custer's military duty. I wonder why he did that. I don't know. Couldn't possibly have anything to do with Custer's testimony against his brother. Probably not. (laughs) General Terry protested, arguing that he had no available officers of rank qualified to replace Custer. Both Sheridan and Sherman wanted Custer in command, but had to support Grant because he's the commander-in-chief, he's the president. General Sherman, hoping to resolve the issue, advised Custer to meet personally with Grant before leaving to Washington. Well, Custer tried three times requesting meetings with the president, but each time he did, the request was refused. Shocking. Shocking that he was refused. Yeah. Do you think Grant was just a little upset with Custer? Uh, I mean, you know, you testify against the guy's brother and slander him all through the press. You could be a little ticked off. Well, finally, Custer gave up and took a train to Chicago on May 2nd, planning to rejoin his regiment. A furious Grant ordered Sheridan to arrest Custer for leaving Washington without permission. Could have led to another court-martial. He's so petty. On May 3rd, 
He's the president if he orders it. Okay. <laughs> like Custer has his way of just doing what he wants to do here. On May 3rd. They're both petty. A member of Sheridan's staff arrested Cusser as he arrived in Chicago. Now, the arrest sparked public outrage. The New York Herald called Grant the modern Caesar and asked, are officers to be dragged from railroad trains and ignominiously ordered to stand aside until the whims of the chief magistrate are satisfied? Glad you said that word. (laughs) Grant relented, but insisted that Terry, not Custer, personally command the expedition. Terry met Custer in St. Paul, Minnesota on May 6th, and he later recalled that Custer, with tears in his eyes, begged for my aid. How could I resist it? There's so much, like, drama. Drama kings in this story. Custer and Terry both wrote telegrams to Grant, asking that Custer lead his regiment with Terry in command. Sheridan endorsed the effort. Now, Grant was already under pressure for his treatment of Custer, and his administration worried that if the Sioux campaign failed without Custer, then Grant would be blamed for ignoring the recommendations of senior army officers. So he's, his hands are kind of tied here. And on May 8th, Custer was told that he would lead the expedition, but only under Terry's direct supervision. Elated, Custer told General Terry's chief engineer, Captain Ludlow, that he would cut loose from Terry and operate independently because he's George Custer. (laughs) By the time of Custer's Black Hills expedition in 1874, the level of conflict and tension between the United States and many of the Plains Indians tribes, including the Lakota Sioux and the Cheyenne, had become exceedingly high. Settlers continually broke treaty agreements and advanced further westward, resulting in violence and acts of depredation by both sides to take possession of the Black Hills and thus the gold deposits and to stop attacks from the indigenous peoples. The United States decided to corral all remaining Free Plains Indians. Grant's government set a deadline of January 31, 1876 for all Lakota and Arapaho wintering in the unceded territory to report to their designated agencies or reservations and they were to be considered hostile. Uh. At that time, the 7th Cavalry Regimental Commander, Colonel Samuel D. Sturgis, was on detached duty as a superintendent of Mounted Recruiting Service in the command of the Cavalry Depot in St. Louis, Missouri, which left Lieutenant Colonel Custer in command of the regiment. Custer and the 7th Cavalry departed from Fort Abraham Lincoln on May 17, 1876, part of a larger Army force planning to round up the remaining Free Indians. Meanwhile, in the spring and summer of 1876, the Papa Lakota Holy Man, Sitting Bull, had called together the largest ever gathering of Plains Indians at Ash Creek, Montana, later moved to the Little Bighorn River, to discuss what to do about the whites. It was this united encampment of Sioux Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho Indians that the 7th met at the Battle of Little Bighorn in the Crow Indian Reservation located in Old Crow Country. In the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851, the Valley of the Little Bighorn is in the heart of the Crow Indian Treaty Territory and is accepted as such by the Lakota, the Cheyenne, and the Arapaho. The Lakota were staying in the valley without consent from the Crow tribe, which sided with the army to expel the Indian invaders. Okay, so I'm having a hard time because trying to pay attention, but Rupert is over there. <laughs> He's fluffing his He's bed. He's trying to fluff his bed up. <laughs> he just gave up. To lay down and take a nap or something. He just gave up. So He, he gave up, yeah. So the, 
so the Crow tribe, which is interesting, um, the 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 Lakota, the Sioux Lakota, the Cheyenne, and the Arapaho all decided to get together to fight the really white invaders that are trying to take over their homelands. Um, and currently they are in the middle of Crow territory. And even though they honor this Crow treaty, you know, the crows still are like, well, you know, if, if they're out of our land, then we can maybe, you know, I don't know if they maybe thought that they could spread out a little bit or just kind of wanted the other tribes out of their land. But they, interestingly enough, were siding with the army. Well, this is where the whole story and the legend of Custer <laughs> comes to take place. So it's time to talk about the Battle of the Little Bighorn, or what we also know as Custer's Last Stand, but to the Lakota Sioux, it's known as the Battle of Gre Greasy Grass. About June 15th, Major Marcus Reno, while on a scout, discovered the trail of a large village on the Rosebud River. On June 22nd, Custer's entire regiment was detached to follow this trail. On June 25th, my birthday, not then, but it's the current date, some of Custer's Crow Indian scouts identified what they claimed to be a large Indian encampment in the valley near the Little Bighorn River. Custer had first intended to attack the village the next day, but since he had been discovered, he decided to attack immediately and divided his forces into three battalions, one led by Major Reno, one by Captain Frederick Benton, and one by himself. Captain Thomas M. McDougall and Company B were with the pack train. Reno was sent north to charge the southern end of the encampment. Custer rode north, hidden to the east of the encampment by bluffs, and he planned to circle around and attack from the north. And Benton was initially sent south and west to scout the Indian presence and potentially protect the column from the south. It's easier if you could see this laid out on a map. But... Reno began to charge on the southern end of the valley, but halted some five to six hundred yards short of the camp and had his men dismount and form a skirmish line. They were soon overcome by the Mount of Lakota and the Cheyenne warriors who counterattacked and in mass against Reno's explosed left flank. Why did he have them get off at their horses? Don't know. That's what he decided needed done at the time. This forced Reno and his men to take cover in the trees along the river. Eventually, however, the troopers engaged in a bloody retreat back up onto the bluffs above the river where they made their own stand. Now, this was the opening battle that cost Reno a quarter of his command. Yikes. Custer may have seen Reno stop and form a skirmish line as, he, as Custer led his command to the north end of the main encampment, where he may have planned to sandwich the warriors between his attacking troopers and Reno's command in a hand, hammer and anvil maneuver. According to Grinnell's account, based on the testimony of the Cheyenne warriors who survived the fight, at least part of Custer's command attempted to ford the river at the north end of the camp, but were driven off by Indian sharpshooters firing from the brush along the west bank of the river. From that point, the soldiers were pursued by hundreds of warriors onto a ridge north of the encampment. Custer and his command were prevented from digging in by Crazy Horse, however, whose warriors had outflanked him and who were now to his north at the crest of the ridge. Traditional white accounts attribute to Gal the attack that drove Custer up onto the ridge, but Sue and Lakota witnesses have disputed that account. For a time, Custer's men appeared to have been deployed by company 
in a standard cavalry fighting formation, the skirmish line, with every fourth man holding the horses. Some speculate that this arrangement would have robbed Custer of a quarter of his firepower, but it is said that this was standard cavalry practice. Worse, as the fight intensified, many soldiers could have taken to holding their own horses or hobbling them, further reducing 7th's effect of fire. Now, I look at this as armchair generals with the advantage of hindsight. Yeah. Custer was experienced enough that I think this kind of could have, should have, would have, should be taken with a grain of salt. I, I mean, after all, like we said, this was standard cavalry practice. So, I mean, that's how it was done. I also wonder how foolhardy this was. That Custer, you know, he really didn't necessarily have the time that he needed to prepare um, he had planned to go the next day. He ended up having to cut it short. And he is attacking a a village, a, a small city, really, that had the advantage of knowing the terrain, knowing the territory, knowing where to hide, knowing what the, you know, where the blind spots and things were. Whereas perhaps his army did not know as well. Yeah, well, he probably would have had time to scout out a little bit, but then again, that's armchair generally. Right. I, you know, you yeah, can't. That's that's fair. You can't second guess why Custer decided he needed. If he could have, I'm pretty sure if he could have delayed, he would have. But there was something that said in his all his experience. I mean, he's a well. I guess that's warrior. what I'm asking too. Is was it experience or was it ego? I I think it was experience because he's got plenty of both. Yeah, he's got plenty of both, but. He is a seasoned commander, and I think, you know, his military training would have taken on. And part of his job as cavalry is to scout. And he would have yeah. sent, if he could have had time, I'm pretty sure he would have sent his scouts out and had a better lay of the land. Yeah. And a better picture of the battlefield. But again, this is just armchair yep. generaling. This is just me thinking him as an experienced cavalry officer. Yeah. When Crazy Horse and White Bull mounted the charge that broke through the center of Custer's lines... Order may have broken down among the soldiers of Calhoun's command, although Miles Keogh's men seemed to have fought and died where they stood. According to some Lakota accounts, many of the panicking soldiers threw down their weapons and either rode or ran towards the knoll where Custer, the other officers, and about 40 men were making a stand. Along the way, the warriors rode them down, counting coup by striking the fleeing troopers with their riding whips or lances. Initially, Custer had 208 officers and men under his direct command with an additional 142 under Reno, just over 100 under Benteen, and 50 soldiers with Captain McDougal's rear guard accompanying 84 soldiers under First Lieutenant Edward Gustav Matthew with the pack train. Now, just for an educational part of this show, the riding whips, what were they actually called? They were called quirts. Quirts, yeah. Quirts. Yeah. But... No, but I don't think many people would know what that no. is. So, yeah, but that was so I had the to educational it. part of <laughs> there the There you show. go. The Lakota Cheyenne may have filled over 1,800 warriors. So there's another reason. Custer was pretty well outnumbered. Yeah. Uh, historian Gregory Mishno settles on a low number of around 1,000 based on contemporary Lakota testimony, but other sources place a number between 1,800 and 2,000 men especially in the works by Utley and Fox. The 18 to 2,000 figure is substantially lower than the higher numbers of 3,000 or more postulated by Ambrose, Gray, Scott, and others. As the troopers of Custer's 
five companies were cut down. The native warriors stripped the dead of their firearms and ammunition with the result that the return fire from the cavalry steadily decreased while the fire from the Indians constantly increased. Their surviving troopers apparently shot the remaining horses to use as breastworks for a final stand on the knoll at the north end of the ridge. The warriors closed in for the final attack and killed every man in Custer's command. As a result, the Battle of the Little Bighorn became popularly known as Custer's Last Stand. When you start using your horses as breastworks, like shooting them intentionally and then piling up and hiding behind them, you know you're in a bad way. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> the last act that, you, yeah. know, you know, it's the last... Yeah, it's the last choice. If you're a cavalryman, yeah. you don't have your horse. What's that mean? You're dead. You're, you're walking a, home. You're a dead man walking. So what, they are. What means you're walking home? Uh, you're a dead <laughs> man walking is what you are. So there are many stories about his death, and it's impossible to sort truth from legend, lore, and those trying to gain notoriety. It's unlikely that any Native American recognized Custer during or after the battle. Michno summarizes. Quote, Shave Elk said, we did not suspect that we were fighting Custer and did not recognize him either alive or dead, end quote. Woodenleg said that no one could recognize any enemy during the fight for they were too far away. The Cheyenne did not even know a man named Custer was in the fight until weeks later. Antelope said none knew of Custer being at the fight until they later learned of it. Historian Thomas Marquis learned from his interviews that no Indian knew Custer was at the Little Bighorn fight until months later. Many Cheyenne were not even aware that other members of the Custer family had been in the fight until 1922 when Marquis himself first informed them of that fact. Several individuals, of course, claimed responsibility for killing Custer, including White Bull, Rain in the Face, Flat Lip, and Brave Bear. In June 2005, at a public meeting, Northern Cheyenne storytellers said, according to their oral, oral tradition, Buffalo Calf Road Woman, a Northern Cheyenne heroine of the Battle of the Rosebud, struck the final blow against Custer, which knocked him off his horse before he died. A contrasting version of Custer's death is suggested by the testimony of an Oglala named Joseph White Cowbull, according to the novelist and Custer's biographer, Evan Connell. He says that Joseph White Bull stated that he had shot a rider wearing a buckskin jacket and a big hat at the riverside when the soldiers first approached the village from the east. Sounds like Custer. The initial force facing the soldiers, according to his version, was quite small, possibly as few as four warriors, yet challenged Custer's command. The rider who was hit was mounted next to a rider who bore a flag and had shouted orders that prompted the soldiers to attack. But when the buckskin-clad rider fell off his horse after being shot, many of the attackers reined up. The theory that the buckskin-clad officer was Custer, if accurate, might explain the, the supposed rapid disintegration of Custer's forces. I mean, that makes sense, and it sounds like what Custer would look like. Yeah. You know, buckskin, big hat ostentatious. However, several other officers of the 7th, including William Cook, Tom Custer, and William Sturgis, were also dressed in buckskin on the day of the battle, and the fact that each of the non-mutilation wounds to George Custer's body, like a bullet wound below the heart and a shot to the left temple, would have been instantly fatal, cast doubt on his being wounded or killed at the ford, more than a mile from where his bat body was found. Which really... 
There's a lot of lore going on if, here. I mean, I suppose it's possible, but that would almost mean that he had to be like tied to his horse and then his horse ran a mile away and no. he fell off no. or I think, something. I, like, think it's, I think it's just people trying to yeah. claim I killed Custer. Yeah. And of course, they all said, we didn't even know Custer was there. <laughs> right. Uh, the circumstances are, however, consistent with David Humphrey Miller's suggestion that Custer's attendants would not have left his dead body behind to be desecrated. During the 1920s, two elderly Cheyenne women spoke briefly with oral historians about having recognized Custer's body on the battlefield and said that they had stopped a Sioux warrior from desecrating the body. The women, and I am so sorry if I get this name wrong, but the women were relatives of Monaseta, who was alleged to have been Custer's lover in late 1868 through 1869 and born two children by him. I think we mentioned her in the first episode. Mona Seta was among 53 Cheyenne women and children taken captive by the 7th Cavalry after the Battle of Washita River in 1868, in which Custer commanded an attack on the camp of Chief Black Kettle that we mentioned earlier. Mona Seta's father, Cheyenne Chief Little Rock, was killed in the battle. During the winter and early spring of 1868 and 1869, Custer reportedly sexually assaulted teenage Mona Seta, and Cheyenne oral history alleges that she later bore Custer's child in late 1869. So when we say she was his lover, take that with a grain of salt, because I don't know if it was necessarily consensual. Custer, however, had apparently become sterile after contracting venereal disease at West Point, leading some historians to believe that the father was really his brother Thomas. So, I mean, there is just so much yeah. that it, it, it's impossible at this point to sort truth. Right. And, you know, did some people want to demonize Custer and make these stories up? Did it happen? No one can really say. No, I mean, I'm sure that there were some very brutal things that it's war. We, I'm sure that, that there were very brutal things that happened to indigenous no, we're not, peoples. But, we're, but not, we're not talking about war. We're talking about rape right here. That's what I'm saying. Like during war, it happens. But and especially when you've got multiple members of the same family, you know, it's not like there were DNA samples back in the day for them to know who Monaseta's baby came from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, the point I just want to make with this is, like I was saying, I think a lot of people want to demonize Custer, so they make these up. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. There's just no way at this point in time that we can sort yeah. out what's true. In the Cheyenne culture of the time, such a relationship was considered a marriage. The woman allegedly told the warrior, stop, he is a relative of ours, and then shooed him away. The two women said that they shoved their sewing awls into his ears to permit Custer's corpse to hear better in the afterlife because he had broken his promise to Stone Forehead never to fight against the Native Americans again. The Army's version is... When the main column under General Terry arrived two days later, the army found most of the soldiers' corpse stripped, scalped, and mutilated. However, there are other reports that contradict the percentage of bodies that were mutilated, attributing some of the mutilation just to the violence of the battle. Mm -hmm. According to the official army reports are that while Custer's body had been stripped of clothing, he had not been mutilated, discounting Monacita's version of stabbing Custer's ears with the sewing awls. 
So again, and also, what are they considering mutilation? Like, if they knew that scalping. that was well, yeah. But I mean, like, you know, I would think if I came upon somebody who you know, had died and had sewing all shoved in their ears, I would probably consider that mutilation. But if they knew the, the cultural, um, you know, meaning behind that, then, you know, maybe they wouldn't consider that mutilation. But so this is the official army report. I'm sure that would have been considered mutilation. And there were no, there was no mutilation. To his body. The, no, like the, mention of there, yeah, sewing there was, needles. Second no, ears. Okay. no. Okay. Um, Custer's body had two bullet holes, one in the left temple and one just below the heart. Captain Benton, who inspected the body, stated that in his opinion, the fatal injuries had not been the result of 45 caliber ammunition carried by the cavalry, which implies the bullet holes had been caused by ranged rifle fire from the Indian. He further states that Custer's body had not been mutilated. Now, let me ask you this before we go on, because... Um, it- because the next thing that you're going to say kind of makes makes me wonder would it be unusual in this situ in a in a um you know a, a war situation a chaotic war situation to take a bullet to the temple because in in my you know untrained mind a shot to the temple is more of an execution style close range thing no it could happen. I mean, there's bullets flying everywhere. There's lead flying everywhere. I mean, there, there's documentation during the Civil War that two bullets actually hit each other in mid-flight, one yeah. from the Confederate side. So, no, I, I don't take anything into that. Okay. Some stories say that Custer and some of his troopers committed suicide. Again. But. Bullets to the temple. Yeah, but it wasn't from. It wasn't their forty-five. It wasn't their forty-five. So. That I think can be yeah, discounted. easily disproven. You know, maybe some did, but we don't think Custer did. Okay. Sometime later, Lieutenant Edward S. Godfrey described Custer's mutilation, telling Charles F. Bates, uh, "This is hard to do, or hard to say. <laughs> it's, probably, arrow, it's probably hard to do too. That an arrow had been forced up his penis." Ooh. Now, yeah. So maybe there was mutilation and maybe not. It's so much conflicting story. It's so much conflict. Yeah. My personal guess, and this is just my personal guess, is to believe the official army reports concerning Custer's body. And here, and here's why. If the body had been mutilated, they would have been, they would have made a lot of noise. And this would have been very prominent to stir up even more negative sentiment against the Sulu and Lakota. Makes so I, I think the official army version was it wasn't. It, I mean, it was, yeah. I, I, I tend to believe the official instead of people just trying to exaggerate and yeah, make, make the story bigger than what it was. It's hard for me, which we, was already bigger. But we know we know that uh, we are fans of conspiracy theory around here, and I am not one to necessarily always trust the government. Um, but in this situation, I. feel feel like it's probably the most consistent yeah i guess story. I, I think any mutilation they would have publicized and that, that, and that makes sense yeah. yeah the bodies of custer and his brother tom were wrapped in canvas blankets then buried in a shallow grave covered by the baskets from a travois held in place by the rock so the travois is basically it's like a sled the sled that's hooked up behind the horse and it's, it's like drug a behind the horse. old version of a wagon yeah without wheels when soldiers returned a year later, the brother's grave had been scavenged by animals and the bones scattered. 
No more than a double handful of small bones were picked up. Now, I can't help but wonder why they didn't recover the bodies on the initial trip to the battle site. And why why did they decide to go back after a year to recover the bodies? Or was that the primary purpose to recover the bodies? Or did they just go out to conduct an after-action review and try to piece it all together? And why did they bury them in a shallow grave? Time? I I don't know. Because they thought that the Indians could still attack and they didn't want to... Like, I mean, maybe, but yeah, there's a lot of, there, there are several questions about this, especially if they had a travois, like they could have just put them on the travois and carried him back to camp to take him back when the battles were all done instead of burying them in a shallow grave. There's a lot of questions about this. Anyway, Custer was reinterred what little they had of him. Well, I don't know if the travois, I don't know if it was the cavalry that buried them. It's not clear. Oh. It could have been the Indians that did this. Well, yeah, I guess that's, I don't, that's I don't, true. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't think of I that. don't know. Yeah, that's true. Um, what was left of Custer, the few handfuls of bones, were reinterred with full military honors at West Point Cemetery on October 10th, 1877. The battle site was designated a national cemetery in 1886. Now, obviously, as you can gather, Custer is not without controversy as the huh. battle has been reviewed and critiqued many times over. To include us. Right. I think, again, we should caution to say that we have the advantage of hindsight. President Grant, a highly successful general but recent antagonist, criticized Custer's actions in the Battle of Little Bighorn. I can't say I'm surprised. He was probably still a little salty over that stuff with Belknap and Orville. Quoted in the New York Herald on September 2nd, 1876, Grant said, I regard Custer's massacre as a sacrifice of troops brought on by Custer himself that was wholly unnecessary. Wholly unnecessary. Well, General Philip Sheridan took a more moderately critical view of Custer's final military actions. General Nelson Miles, who inherited Custer's mantle of famed Indian fighter, and others praised him as a fallen hero betrayed by the incompetence of subordinate officers. Miles noted the difficulty of winning a fight with seven-twelfths of the command remaining out of the engagement when they were within sound of rifle shots. Again, we're talking hindsight. Such an odd number. Seven-twelfths. Seven <laughs> like, not like three, four, I don't know. Maybe it's different times, I guess. The assessment of Custer's actions during the American Indian Wars has undergone substantial reconsideration in moder- modern times. Documenting the arc of popular perception in his biography, Son of the Morning Star, written in 1984, author Evan Connell notes the reverential tone of Custer's first biographer, Frederick Whitaker, whose book was rushed out the year of Custer's death. Connell concludes, In our current society and social attitudes, it's easy for us to view Custer in a very different light than he was viewed by 19th century Americans that thought differently. At that time, he was a cavalier without fear and beyond reproach. Now, certainly there is a difference between his actions during the Civil War and his actions on the plains. Well, the controversial or blame for the disaster at Little Bighorn, it continues to this day. Major Marcus Reno's failure to press his attack on the south end of the Lakota Cheyenne Village and his flight to the timber along the river after a single casualty have been cited as a factor in the destruction of Custer's battalion 
as has Captain Frederick Benton's allegedly tardy arrival on the battlefield after the failure of the two officers' combined forces to move forward to the relief of Custer. I do kind of blame a little bit. Uh, I mean, Major Reno definitely not great. But if you're going to let one major's misstep, like that, that can't influence the entire outcome of your battle. Well, it could. And, and again, it, it's hard to sit here and judge. I know. So maybe, maybe Major Reno. That's why we're doing the show. Maybe what Major Reno saw that, okay, he saw that one guy, but you don't know what he saw happening. And he decided back here is a better place to defend. So it's just so hard to sit here and say it's his fault because he didn't do this. Maybe when he saw that one, maybe he was actually even planning to move back to better ground to fight before that one guy was a casualty. You just, you don't know. It's hard to second guess. But some of Custer's critics have asserted tactical errors. While camped at Powder River, Custer refused the support offered by General Terry on June 21st of an additional four companies of the 2nd Cavalry. Custer stated that he could whip any Indian village on the plains with his own regiment and that extra troops would simply be a burden. At the same time, he left behind at the steamer far west on the Yellowstone a battery of Gatling guns knowing he was facing superior numbers. Before leaving the camp, all the troops, including the officers, also boxed their sabers and sent them back with the wagon. So he left firepower back. On the day of the battle, Custer divided his 600-man command, despite being faced with vastly superior numbers of Sioux and Cheyenne. The refusal of extra, the extra battalion reduced the size of his force by at least one-sixth. Now we're getting into six instead of <laughs> seven-twelfths. And rejecting the firepower offered by the Gatling guns played into the events of June 25th to the disadvantage of his regiment. Now I can understand maybe dividing his 600 man command because, you know, the, the idea was maybe he was going to sandwich them. You you split your, you know, I, I kind of maybe see where he was going with that. And his defenders, including historian Charles K. Hoffling have asserted that Gatling guns would have been slow and cumbersome as the troops crossed the rough country between the Yellowstone and the little bighorn. Custer rated speed in gaining the battlefield as an essential and more important than those Gatling guns. Supporters of Custer claim that splitting the forces was a standard tactic. You even mentioned that yourself. So as to demoralize the enemy with the appearance of the cavalry in different places all at once, especially when a contingent threatened the line of retreat. Sharply criticizing the self-styled Indian fighter, U.S. Indigenous Peoples' organized movements have emphasized Custer's role in the U.S. government's treaty violations and other injustices against Native Americans. Standing Rock Sioux theologian and author Vine Delore Jr. made an emotionally charged comparison between Custer and the Nazi German SS officer Adolf Eichmann, calling the former the Adolf Eichmann of the Plains in a 1996 Los Angeles Times interview. In his 1969 book, Custer Died for Your Sins, Deloria condemned Custer's violations of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty that established the Black Hills region as unceded territory of the Sioux and Arapaho peoples. 
Custer's violations of the Fort Laramie Treaty included an 1874 gold expedition and the 1876 Battle of Greasy Grass, or Custer's Last Stand. In 1976, the American Indian Movement celebrated the centennial anniversary of Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho victory in the Battle of Greasy Grass, performing a victory dance around the marker of Custer's death. AIM continued protesting there, demanding the official renaming of the Custer Battlefield, finally winning this demand in 1991. It is now known as the Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument. In May 2021, the United Tribes of Michigan unanimously passed a resolution calling for the removal of a Custer statue in Monroe, Michigan. The resolution stated in part, It is widely perceived as offensive and a painful public reminder of the legacy of indigenous people's genocide and present realities of systemic racism in our country. Custer is notoriously known as the Indian killer. Custer does not deserve any glory, nor the right to further torment minoritized citizens 145 years post-mortem. The statue was not removed and is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Custer has been called a media personality, and he valued good public public relations and used print media in his air effectively. He frequently invited journalists to accompany his campaigns. One Associated Press reporter, Mark Kellogg, died at the Little Bighorn, and their favorable reporting contributed to his high reputation, which lasted well in the latter 20th century. That's so interesting. I didn't realize that there were... I'm embedded reporters that far back. Yeah, I guess so. Custer enjoyed writing, often writing all night long. He wrote a series of magazine articles of his experiences on the frontier, which were published in book form as My Life on the Plains in 1874. The work is still valued as a primary source of information on U.S. Native relations. After his death, Custer achieved lasting fame. Despite some initial criticism, the public eventually saw him as a tragic military hero. Custer's wife, Elizabeth, who had accompanied him in many of his frontier expeditions, did much to advance his view with the publication of several books about her late husband. Boots and Saddles, Life with General Custer in Dakota, Tending on the Plains, or General Custer in Kansas and Texas, and Following the Guide on. You know who she reminds me of? Nope. Jim Thorpe's wife. You know what I mean? Like mm. they both did a lot to make their husbands. It was Jim Ford's Thorpe's 12th wife, wasn't it? I, I mean, like one that, of yeah. his wives, but they both did a lot to posthumously make their husbands. The, these like put them in, in the public mind of, you know, greater than great. Yeah, they love their husbands, which is, that's very sweet. The deaths of Custer and his troops became the best-known episode in the history of the American Indian Wars due to, in part, a painting commissioned by the brewery Anheuser-Busch as part of an advertising campaign. The Anheuser-Busch Company ordered reprints of uh, a dramatic work that depicted Custer's last stand and had them framed and hung in many of the United States saloons. This created lasting impressions of the battle and the brewery's products in the minds of many bar patrons. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote an adoring and in some places erroneous poem. And President Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, San Juan Hill, his lavish praise that he placed on Custer really pleased Mrs. Custer. Of course it did. 
There are many places named after Custer as well as monuments. Counties are named in Custer's honor in six states, Colorado, Idaho, which is named for the General Custer Mine, which was named for Custer, Montana, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and South Dakota. Townships in Illinois, Michigan, and Minnesota were named for Custer. Other municipalities named after Custer include the villages of Custer, Michigan, and Custer spelled with an A-R, Ohio, the city of Custer, South Dakota, and the unincorporated town of Custer, Wisconsin. Custer National Cemetery is within Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument, the site of Custer's death. The George Armstrong Custer Equestrian Monument of Custer by Edward Clark Potter was erected in Monroe, Michigan, Custer's boyhood home in 1910. Fort Custer National Military Reservation near Augusta, Michigan was built in 1917 on 130 parcels of land as part of the military mobilization for World War I. During the war, some 90,000 troops passed through Camp Custer. The establishment of Fort Custer National Cemetery, which was originally Fort Custer Post Cemetery, took place on September 18, 1943, with the first interment. On Memorial Day 1982, more than 33 years after the first resolution had been in- introduced in Congress, impressive ceremonies marked the official opening of the cemetery. Custer Hill is the main troop billeting area at Fort Riley, Kansas, and you can probably speak on that a little bit. Been there, done that. Custer's 1866 residence on the post has been preserved and is currently maintained as the Custer House Museum and Meeting Space, and also sometimes referred to as Custer Home. Now, we had some- Been there. We have some friends who were stationed at Fort Riley. Just down the street. And Maggie did some volunteering at the museum, and she insisted that it was haunted, so- yeah, okay. Well, there you go. That's what Maggie says. Yeah. Um, the 85th Infantry Division was named the Custer Division. The Black Hills of South Dakota is full of evidence of Custer, with a county, town, and Custer State Park all located in the area. A prominent mountain peak in the Black Hills bears his name. The Custer House at Fort Abraham Lincoln near present-day Mandan, North Dakota. Oh, I got a story. Oh, go for it. Custer State Park. So in 19-something... I was sent to Custer, South Dakota to evaluate an engineer company of the South Dakota National Guard. And they, we did a lot of work in Custer National Park in a huge boulder. I mean, big as a, a garage Whoa. had rolled down off the mountain, was blocking a road. And we, we had to... I remember this story. And we had to blow up that rock. We had to move the rock. We had to blow it up. So, up. so we had a lot of explosives and... We were, you know, everything was ready to go when a buffalo, you know, we did all the precautions and then a buffalo like wandered up close to this rock. So we had to stop, basically shoo this buffalo away (laughs) and make sure no other buffaloes were there. And then we went ahead and the rock was blown up. So if you would like more information on shooing buffaloes and blowing up rocks, please send us... Your name and phone number, and Steve will be happy to get in contact with no you. No buffaloes were injured <laughs> in that blowing up of the rock. <laughs> As I was saying, the Custer House at Fort Abraham Lincoln near present-day Mandan, North Dakota, has been reconstructed as it was in Custer's day, along with the soldiers' barracks, blockhouses, etc. Annual reenactments are held of Custer's 7th Cavalry's leaving for the Little Bighorn. On July 2nd, 2008, a marble monument to Brigadier General Custer was dedicated on the site of the 1863 Civil War Battle of Hunterstown in Adams County, Pennsylvania. 
and I'm really curious um, if we, I don't know that we have any indigenous listeners, but if we do, I'm very curious to know what indigenous people think of Custer as a leader in the civil war, you know, as a, as a military figure apart from the Indian wars. That is a very Kim like question. (laughs) I'm just, I'm curious. Anyway, uh, Custer Monument at the United States Military Academy was first unveiled in 1879. It now stands next to his grave in West Point Cemetery. And I might get a chance to visit there next week. Oh, yeah. You're going I will be to, at West Point. Uh, you're going to West Point next week. Yep. Custer Memorial Monument at his birthplace was erected by the Ohio State Archaeological and Historical Society in 1931. It's located near the remains of the foundation of his birthplace homestead in New Rumley, Ohio. Custer Monument is managed locally by the Custer Memorial Association. Okay, so since one of our favorite pastimes is playing trivia... Shout out to Sarah G. Shout out to Sarah G. Who will be on the show eventually. Yes. Uh, Our friend Sarah G is a very well-known Dayton prop master, and so this is kind of a busy time of year for her, but she, when when things start slowing down a little bit, she's going to come on the show and talk about what it's like to be a prop master. And maybe trivia. And maybe trivia. So anyway... Here's some trivia about Custer. And so, Sergi, if you're listening, <laughs> I wouldn't, we're going to win. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, win. yeah, yeah. Four of his family members also died at Little Bighorn among the force of more than 200 men wiped out by the Lakota Sioux and the Cheyenne Warriors on June 25th, 1876, were Custer's 18-year-old nephew, Henry Reed, brother-in-law James Calhoun, and two younger brothers, Boston and Thomas, who was a Civil War veteran and two-time Medal of Honor recipient. Side note, I really like the name Boston for a person. The flamboyant Custer paid great attention to his appearance, as we mentioned earlier in an episode or part one. He wore a black velvet uniform with coils of gold lace, spurs on his boots, a red scarf around his neck, and a large, broad-brimmed sombrero. Custer took particular pride in his cascading golden locks, which he perfumed with cinnamon oil. And hearing that description makes me think of the Three Amigos movie with (laughs) Steve Martin and Martin Short and Chevy Chase. If you are not familiar, go look it up. In addition to Audie, Custer required a number of nicknames during the Civil War after his promotion to become the youngest brigadier general in the Army at age 23. The press frequently called him the Boy General. During his years on the Great Plains in the American Indian Wars, his troopers often referred to him with grudging admiration as iron butt and hard ass for his physical stamina in the saddle and his strict discipline, as well as with the more derisive ringlets for his long curling blonde hair, which, as we just said, he frequently perfumed with cinnamon scented hair oil. Custer was quite particular in his grooming, I guess. (laughs) Early in their marriage, Libby wrote... He brushes his teeth after every meal. I always laugh at him for it, also for washing his hands so frequently. He was a germaphobe, maybe. He was a man ahead of his time, maybe. Yeah. He was 5'11 and wore a size 38 jacket and 9C boots, which he's very trim. He's a very trim man. At various times, he weighed between 143 pounds at the end of the 19, or 1869 Kansas campaign and a muscular 170 pounds. Now, I will go public with this because I'm not ashamed of it. I also am 5'11", and I weigh about 175 pounds. So 143 pounds is downright scary. 
skinny if you're 5'11". Especially for if he's a guy. Yeah. 143 is skinny. So, um, yeah. He, well, that's why he was wearing a size 38 jacket. Yeah, he was scrawny. Yeah, I wear like a size 44. And I'm five foot nine. Mm. Yeah. Okay. We're measuring across the chest, mm-hmm. not across the belly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> he was a splendid horseman. <laughs> Custer, <laughs> Custer Mounted was an inspiration. He was quite fit and able to jump to a standing position from lying flat on his back. I'm sorry. <sighs> oh. I'm a professional. <laughs> he was... He was a power sleeper. Just like him. I, we have a lot in common. I also smell good. Um, he was able to get by on very short naps. Okay, no, this is not just like me. He was able to get by on very short naps after falling asleep immediately on lying down. Okay, that is like me. He had a habit of throwing himself prone on the grass for a few minutes of rest and resembled a human island entirely surrounded by crowding, panting dogs. That is the life. I want to just lay in the grass and be surrounded by dogs and take a nap in the sunshine. Well, <laughs> we got Rupert and Jack. Maybe Polly and B will come around. Throughout his travels, he gathered geological specimens sent him to the University of Michigan. On September 10th, 1873, he wrote Libby, the Indian battles hindered the collecting while in that immediate region. It was unsafe to go far from the command. Oh, those pesky battles. He was well-liked by his native scouts, whose company he enjoyed. He often ate with them. A May 21st, 1876 diary entry by Kellogg records, General Custer visits scouts much at home amongst them. Before leaving the steamer far west for the final leg of the journey, where he left the Gatling guns, Custer wrote all night long. His orderly, John Berkman, stood guard in front of his tent, and on the morning of June 22nd, 1876, found Custer hutched hunched over the cot with just his coat and his boots were off and his pen was still in his hand. During his service in Kentucky, Custer bought several thoroughbred horses, not to be confused with the one that he stole. He took two on his last campaign, Vic for victory and Dandy, which is also fitting. During the march, he changed horses every three hours and he rode Vic into his last battle. William Buffalo Bill Cody who had briefly scouted for Custer, also contributed to the myth-making. Weeks after the Battle of Little Bighorn, he killed and scalped a Cheyenne warrior named Yellowhair and declared it the first scalp for Custer. Buffalo Bill replayed the scene repeatedly throughout his theatrical career and incorporated reenactment of Custer's last rally, complete with several Native Americans who had actually been present at the Battle of Little Bighorn into his famed Wild West show. That's really interesting to me that yep. they would be willing. It's almost like a minstrel show that it, they would be willing to be different times. Yeah. Custer was considered to have a charmed life during the civil war. The boy general seemed to have such a streak of good fortune, which included his avoidance of serious injury in spite of his daring command and having 11 horses shot out from under him that it was referred to as Custer's luck. 11 horses shot out from That's under That's a you? lot. Yeah. The revival of his military career after his 1867 court-martial furthered the perception that Custer lived a charmed life, but Custer's luck ran out at Little Bighorn. Maybe that's why he took the horse, because he wasn't really good at keeping horses. (laughs) Maybe. So maybe I'll need this one down the road somewhere. Mm. Custer took his two staghounds, Tuck and Bloosh, 
with him during the last expedition. He left them with the, his orderly, Berkman, when he rode forward into battle. Berkman joined the pack train. He regretted not accompanying Custer, but lived until 1925 when he took his own life. Aww. The common media image of Custer's appearance at the last stand, buckskin coat and long, luscious, curly blonde hair, is wrong. Although he and several other officers wore buckskin coats on the expedition, they took them off and packed them away because it was so hot. According to a soldier, an Arikara scout, Custer took off his buckskin coat and tied it behind his saddle. Further, Custer, whose hair was thinning, joined a similarly balding Lieutenant Varnum and had the clippers run over their heads before leaving Fort Lincoln. His dramatic end was as controversial as the rest of his career and reaction to his life and career remains deeply divided. His legend was partly of his own fabrication through his extensive journalism and perhaps more through the energetic lobbying of his wife, Elizabeth Bacon, Libby Custer, throughout her long widowhood. Okay, and so that even goes back to... The buckskin coat the, thing, the buck, yeah. It's, Who knows? Again, Who I just knows say, what's true? No one knows what's true anymore with he's, this story. He's, he's very pompous and vain and um, pretty good at what he did, honestly. We got to give him that. Yeah. So those are all things that we know. Well, sure. there, there you have it. George Armstrong Custer in about two hours. <laughs> Yeah. War hero or war criminal? Maybe a little bit of both. Maybe a little bit of both. Depends so, on which I mean, war you're looking at. Yeah. I, there's just so much to this story in controversy, truth, fiction. He was lore. definitely a colorful character. He was absolutely a very colorful character. So. Yep. So there we have it. All <laughs> yep. about George Armstrong Custer. <laughs> so, I th- we're you know, we don't usually do this, but we're looking at next week talking about the... Um, the San Francisco uh, earthquake. The, the San Francisco earthquake. Um, April 18th. So that is Monday. Today is Saturday as we're recording this. We'll, Monday. Get, it out de- we'll get it out during the week of the earthquake. Uh, we'll try to get it out during the week. I don't want to make any promises, but we'll That's try. Um, so it, it is the anniversary is on April 18th. If you happen to hear this by then uh, and... If you so we that's what we're going to be presenting. We'll talk about it next week. Um, our goal we say this every episode. I feel like we're trying to get back on a schedule. Um, things have been a little hectic. We have uh, no excuses. No excuses. We have we have one kid that's planning on moving to Florida. We have another kid that's you know got some medical issues going on and there's just a lot and i'm doing a lot of travel right yeah now. steve's doing a lot of travel it, there's a lot going on so we we are really trying um but we we love our show and we stick with us we love you please don't give up on us we really love doing this and so we're gonna try and make more of a concentrated effort so how do you get hold of us kim you can find us on all the socials wait Facebook. wait what's what? going on with tiktok oh um, you know, I honestly don't have, so this past week, and there you go, <laughs> this past week, uh, we talked about Easter, um, kind of the Easter traditions in the, in the history of Easter. Um, and I haven't really decided what we're going to talk about this coming week, what my theme is for this coming week, but we've, uh, we've covered quite a few things on TikTok. Um, if you want to follow me on TikTok, it's, uh, my, it's at nine, three, seven, Kim. Um, or you can also, if you follow us on Instagram, I'm also on Instagram at underscore the fount, 
F-O-U-N-T underscore. Like the fount of knowledge? The fount of useless knowledge, yes. Useless knowledge. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, at 937Kim is a little bit easier on TikTok. So I, it's kind of like an hour of your life condensed into a minute. I try to come up with a theme every week and do a minute based on that theme. All right. So back to an hour of your life. Yes. Yeah, sorry. How Thank do you get you. hold of us? Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And and if you want to write us an email, which we love getting mail. It's like when you're a kid and you always race out to the mailbox and it's all bills and you don't ever get anything. Um, it's a lost hour at gmail.com. Kind of like Amazon packages coming to the house. I never get anything. Everything is always addressed I to you. specifically bought you a letter opener under your name just so you would get it. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So please send us email, but not bills. So with that, from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources include Wikipedia, rabcollection.com, National Park Services, History.com, the National Institute of Health, and even though it was just in last week's episode, Harry Jurgens, congratulations on your promotion and not being the GOAT.